Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and this is a Slate spoiler special on the movie Factory Girl. Now, remember, the spoiler special is where we give away the twists, the secrets, the plot of the movie. So you won't want to listen to this spoiler special until you've seen Factory Girl, or you might find out something you don't want to know. Joining me in the studios are Julia Turner, at the Slate Culture Editor. Hi, Julia. Hi, Dana. And Megan O'Rourke, the literary editor of Slate. Hi, Megan. Hi, Dana. So we all saw Factory Girl, the new George Hickenlooper film about Edie Sedgwick and Andy Warhol and the factory scene last night. And let's get a general reaction. What did you guys think of the movie? Recommend, not recommend, love it, hate it? I was not a fan of it. I thought it was so badly written. There were so many incredibly clunky lines in it. And you two saw it in a theater, and I saw it at home on my TV, and it just seemed like a television biopic. I mean, it was very stylish, and the clothes are amazing, and one sort of suspects that half of the motive for making the movie was to trick Sienna Miller out in all those clothes, but it didn't really tell me much about the scene, about Warhol, about Edie Sedgwick, and it certainly didn't make me care about any of them. Julia, I, th- I agree with you. I didn't love the film. One thing that might be different about having seen it in a theater is that it is the film stock is really interesting. There's all this different texture and graininess, and I guess that they went back and tried to find the same kind of film stock that was being used in Super 8 cameras and Super 16s, and that was really enjoyable as a kind of feast for the eyes. And I did think the movie started to get at kind of the fine line between glamour and ghastliness that was the factory, you know, uh, or it seemed like it could be said to be the factory. But there was just this weird, like, let's rescue Edie from her self-destruction element that was so psychologized and therapeutic and she didn't have enough love and all of which I'm sure is, you know, kind of objectively true and that that's a note struck a lot in the Edie book. But I found it cloying by the end. Yeah, it, it pushed those um, moments of pathos with the, with the Edie character far too far. I mean, I would say, I want to say a few things in defense of the movie. Maybe like Edie, I just want to rescue some things about the movie. But <laughs> I agree that, you know, Megan and I were more swept up in the just the visuals and the shimmering surface of the thing than Julia, which is, of course, a result of having seen it on the big screen as well. But in addition to looking really great, I mean, the movie moved along really nicely. You were caught up in it in a kind of a TV biopic kind of mm-hmm. way. And Sienna Miller, as Edie Sedgwick, to my surprise, was actually quite good. I thought that her performance was, you know, one of the better performances in the movie. And Sienna Miller was principally famous for having had her boyfriend, Jude Law, cheat on her with the nanny while they were together and became a great object of tabloid gossip and, you know, fashion criticism and so forth. So I didn't expect much from her performance. And granted, she basically just had to be a beautiful, charming party girl who, you know, goes downhill, which is a fairly stock part to play. But I, I found her very watchable. And no, I, I felt so bad for Sienna Miller because she was really wonderful in this role <laughs> that was so horrifically written. She just had to deliver all of these. Do you want to give us some clunker awful, lines? She wrote a few down. Awful lines like, I was trying to keep the big sadness at bay and... Um, but she, Can I give my favorite clunker bad line yeah, in the yeah. movie? This is just sort of a classic biopic line that out of context is, is, is great. It's the moment that Edie Sedgwick's sort of big blustering rich father is taking Andy Warhol and Edie to dinner and he says, Can I get you a steak, Warhol? You look like you could use one. <laughs> <laughs> that line was great. And then my other favorite line was the line where later in the movie she, you know, she takes up with this musician character who's very obviously and badly patterned on Bob Dylan and he sort of deflates the whole Warhol scene for her and he meets up with her at some Warhol opening and you know she's sort of looking glamorous but feeling empty and he kind of pokes her in the sternum and says inside there well it's as empty as your friend's soup can which <laughs> on the one hand is ridiculous on the other hand those soup cans are closed and sealed they're full of soup <laughs> 
Um, that relationship, for me, at the heart of the movie, the picture of Edie torn between these two men and these two models, right, of Andy Warhol all surface and kind of clearly in the eyes of the filmmakers manipulator who maybe wasn't producing art really that culturally valuable, and then this Bob Dylan-type figure, Prophet, who was going to rescue her from her emptiness. That was just so overdetermined, and for me, the, the place where all of the film's impulse to rescue her just kind of got very clunky somehow. And, Let's talk uh, for a minute about the Bob Dylan character. Yeah. I mean, he's never sp- explicitly named, obviously, as right. Bob Dylan, and of course, they weren't able to get the rights to Dylan's music, so we never really even hear him play his music. Right. And as as you were just saying, Megan, this character is sort of set up as a prophet, a Dylan-style prophet, not only in his music, but in his knowledge about you know the hollowness of the factory world and what Edie should do with her life to save herself. And I'm not sure that we all agree on what the movie thinks of Dylan. I mean, just before we started recording, one of you said, you know, maybe the reason that Bob Dylan, the real Bob Dylan, objected to the release of this movie at a certain point, and arguably may have, he may have even held up the film's release by threatening a lawsuit. There's all kinds of rumors about his relation to this movie, but I didn't quite understand why. I think that the portrait of him is quite stupid, but it's certainly hagiographic. I, I, I didn't think that he came off badly at all. The movie seemed to believe that if she had just chosen Bob Dylan instead of Andy Warhol, Edie would have been, in fact, saved. But this was my fundamental problem with the movie, is that it didn't really wrangle with any of the interesting ideas that either Warhol was working with or Dylan was working with. It didn't explain to me or inform me in any way sort of what was significant about either scene apart from saying, Andy's a genius, he's changed the way we look at the world, or um, Dylan is a prophet, he's paying attention to what's going on out there. You know, I mean, it was these just very, very vague platitudes, and so it was hard to take this dichotomy between the two of them seriously. I absolutely agree with you, Julia. I thought, you know, surely there were people having some interesting conversations at this time, if not in the factory, (laughs) then about the factory. And I felt there was a real distaste for Warhol that seeped through. Um, But that was exactly the next question I wanted to bring up. Um, We were just talking before the recording about how apparently the director, George Hickenlooper, dislikes Warhol, dislikes his art, and thinks that his art is not important. And although that's never clearly stated in the film, and there's certainly not, you know, there's not a character who's the mouthpiece for the director condemning this art... It is really clear that Warhol himself is exposed as a horrible person by the end of the film. And I wanted to ask you, too, I mean, do you think that this this movie is anti-Andy Warhol as an artist? I definitely did. And whatever one dislikes about Warhol and and the factory and how whatever degree he did really use Edie up, she was also responsible in some sense, right? I mean, she's not completely without agency. And I thought that the film completely allowed her to be an object while trying to give her an inner life, and it wasn't clear in its own mind about well, how to scene, do that. I mean, as long as we're spoiling things here, what the scene where she bursts into the restaurant where Andy and the factory folks are having dinner late in the movie, and she's all screwed up, but she looks sort of like the late Judy Garland at this mm-hmm. point, and has, you know, smeared mascara and is clearly an addict and so forth, and, you know, she very weepily accuses Warhol of using her up and throwing her away, and her downfall is his fault and so forth, but are we supposed to sympathize purely with her in that scene? It seemed to me that, you know, it was it was one of the few moments in the movie when we might have been able to have some perspective on both points of view. I, I think you're giving the movie too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're supposed to really feel her pain when she's screaming, you fucked me up! You fucked me up! You know, it seems like the movie does a real disservice to her in denying her kind of any agency. And I actually thought, although the intellectual dichotomy between Dylan and Warhol is really badly drawn, the emotional scenes that I found the most compelling were the ones in which Edie is sort of caught between the two men in her life. Like, there's the scene with her dad and Warhol at dinner, which is just very awkward and kind of engaging in a way that the rest of the movie is sort of kind of brisk. And then there's the scene where she brings 
the Dylan character to the factory finally. And Dylan is just a complete schoolyard bully. And he's, I think the movie wants you to believe that he's pointing out to her that she's been exploited, that this world is full of nothing, that it has no meaning. Um, But he just seems like such an asshole that you end up with sympathy for neither of these people. But the the portrayal of Edie in the scene is sort of caught between the two cool kids and wanting them to like each other and feeling really heartbroken that they're being so mean to each other was a kind of compelling to me for her as a character, sort of why she was so dependent on the opinions of these men. Um, that was sort of made me wish that the movie had been better. <laughs> yeah, I liked that scene because you had this feeling of these two obdurate, larger-than-life, you know, egos and artists and what you're talking about the scene where she brings Dylan to the factory yeah and you know Andy Warhol's like can you sit in the chair I'm going to do a screen test of you and Dylan's like nah nah, I'm not going to sit and then then he gets mad at Andy Warhol for not directing him because you know for Dylan direction is like artistic and you know he wants Warhol to be sort of stating something or be an artist he's saying be an artist artist, right and yet like Dylan himself earlier has been like I'm not going to talk about my music and you you know if you've ever read interviews with Dylan he was so obdurate and like unwilling to make me you know like be apparently meaningful when he was interviewed by reporters and that scene is so fabulous because there's kind of no room for Edie in it in a way like even though she's a supposed superstar she's not really somehow projecting that will. It it seemed to me that if this movie isn't about Warhol and its scene or doesn't have anything intelligent to say about it that maybe it has something intelligent to say about like the Lindsay Lohans of this world about sort of how you become someone who's famous not for whatever your talents actually are if you have them but for no particular reason and the emptiness of that. And I don't actually think it had very much intelligence to say about that either. But that scene hinted at this girl whose motives are caught up in that, in being known and and being known for who she knows and um, how difficult that would be. I thought what was really interesting about that was just that it brought home the fact, which I should have thought about before, but that the first It Girl was like a blue blood, you know, and that in some ways the pursuit of It Girldom has been is part of this weird repressed class longing in America too. like it girls want to be it girls because they're in movies and so on but they also want to be it girls so that they can be like the rich pretty girl on the block the one thing I guess that I left the movie with was that as the credits were rolling they have these scenes of real people George Plimpton and others start remembering Edie and talking about what was fascinating about her and that part just made me wish that I'd seen a really good documentary about Edie Sedgwick rather than having seen this movie the George Plimpton book you mentioned, this actually is a, is a biography of Edie that's sort of a, a classic of pop biography from, I guess, the late 80s, is that when it's from, that's edited by George Plimpton and Gene Stein. And it's an, it was not the basis for this biopic at all. But it's sort of evoked in these closing credits Julia just mentioned where, you know, we have little inset shots of talking head interviews, essentially, with real people from Edie's life, her brother, Jonathan, and some figures from the factory and so forth. And I think we all agreed that that was one moment when the movie really came alive. There's some actual pictures of Edie and Andy and, you know, the characters we've just seen in the factory, you know, intercut with these interviews. And suddenly you get a real sense of vibrancy and, wait, this was an interesting person. This was an interesting time. We just saw the wrong movie. Yeah. I did feel, though, that Sienna Miller and Guy Pierce were really good and gave me a sense of vibrancy. I just thought the film didn't know what to do with that. Yeah, right. I just you know, mean I that the intellectual... It was frustrating because the vibrancy was there, but there was no larger, like, vehicle for yeah, it. Yeah, let's right put now, it this way. Know? The intellectual vibrancy of that right. time, yeah, right, yeah, of, yeah. Of, of what made The Factory important and exciting right. and what made Dylan's music, you know, important and exciting was not there. Certainly the beautiful surfaces were there and the fashion and the music. And actually, if you just want to see, you know... a couple of good performances and some really beautiful art direction and costuming, I would recommend Edie. Why not? Certainly. One last thought. There's a Mary-Kate Olsen cameo somewhere in this film, it said in the credits, and I couldn't find it. Oh, that's a good reason to go back and <laughs> with, a, with a DVD player and a, and a remote control. Question. Yeah, Anyone who finds it, you know, 
Let Please write in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot for um, for joining me in this uh, discussion, Julia and Megan. Thanks, thanks Dana. For us, Dana. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.